The Worker Learner Podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered. Hi, I'm Dr. Johanna Nalau and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm a climate adaptation scientist who is curious about how humans adapt to changing situations and how we can overcome some of the barriers that stand in our way. I am in love with curiosity and innovation and I'm really driven to find out how we make decisions, especially under uncertainty and chaotic conditions. I recently worked on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Six Assessment Report in Working Group 2 on Impacts Adaptation and Vulnerability, where I focused specifically on how we adapt to climate change. But change is all around us, and it is really the one thing that seems constant in life. In interviewing people for this podcast, I really hope to learn new ideas and principles in how we can make better decisions and keep moving forward. My guest today is Dr. Jean Renoff. Jean... John wears many hats, so he's an academic, actually a pracademic, which we'll talk about. Uh, he's a firefighter. He has worked in war zones and in highly complex and challenging environments, including Afghanistan, Iraq, Israel, Palestine, North Korea, and Yemen. And he's also the founder of the community organization called Resilient Byron, and he's also a parent. Uh, Jean is deeply interested in the biggest challenge that we all face, which is climate change. But he sees a way that we can approach this. I'm really curious about his experiences in community regeneration and resilience as well. Jean, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So to kick off, could you just explain a bit what is a pracademic? Yes. So look, prior to joining academia, I've been working in academia for I think around seven years now. I spent 15 years working in different countries and in the field doing some uh, direct work on the ground. And I have kept this kind of mindset, even uh, as I lecture or do my academic research. So whatever I do at uni, really, I see myself as the in-between between the big IDs being produced in academia, which are well worth, you know, uh, their goals, but they can be also very difficult to comprehend for someone who is not necessarily emerged in that world. And in real life, in between inverted bracket, where those big ideas can be implemented. So to me, a pracademic is the one who sits in between those two worlds and facilitates basically, uh, on the one hand, knowledge in the real world, but also on the other hand, real life into academia. And so... What have you found in, in terms of sitting, sitting in between these two worlds? What have you been, have found that are really great skills in, in kind of helping the, the theory and things that we know how things should work and then actually translating those ideas on the ground? So something I'm really um, fond of is the intellectual rigor that comes with academic thinking. I think it's essential in, in these you know, times of uncertainties and conspiracy thinking and just overwhelming load of information. It's good to be able to fall back to some sort of uh, information, which is to a certain degree um, kind of fact-checked and researched and tested by others 
um, and it gives some sort of um, like credibility, which is you know uh, well worth acknowledging and emphasizing in these in these times of uncertainty. So I like this. At the same time, I also find sometimes academia a bit too, um, I don't know, too wishy-washy for someone who's not part of it. Uh, it took me personally a good couple of years to really, um, when I was doing my PhD uh, more than a decade ago, it took me a good couple of years to accept you know, that people who were in these, this thinking were really deeply immersed in this thinking. And it, therefore, it takes time and effort to engage with those big ideas. Um, and if you're not, if you're just thrown in, it's it might be a bit difficult to just grasp what they are saying and making sense of what they're saying. But I think that skill to uh, be able to, you know, embrace those big ideas, make sense of them and simplify them uh, to a wider audience outside of academia is really essential uh, and really helpful. So, yeah, to me, that that is sort of skill which uh, comes as uh, with being a pre-academic mm. So really about you know communication and simplifying simplifying ideas for others so they can understand actually actually do something with that. Yes, yes. Um, but part of I know that you know uh, part of your work history has been has been in war zones. Why did you want to work in war zones? Huh. Um, I think there are multiple reasons, really. <laughs> One, I was a young male, no seeking adventure, frankly. <laughs> um, I was in my early twenties, and I wanted to, um, yeah, to. I wanted adventure, but I wanted meaningful adventure. I didn't want just to, you know, do stupid stuff. I wanted to do stupid stuff which which had a purpose somehow. And it felt to me that providing aid um, in conflict zones was striking this balance. And and so that that was a, a prime reason. The second reason is because. Look, I, I don't know why I was always, as even as a kid, you know, attracted to conflict and wars. Like, even though you know, you could tell, you could say that my personality is very conflict avoiding for some strange reason. I was drawn into those those conflict zones, and as as even pre teenager and teenager, I was reading book about wars, you know, the Second World War, the Vietnam War, and I was always interested by these topics. Um, find them kind of strangely fascinating. And also, from at a deeper level, I would, like I had this realization when I was a teenager. Like when you read about, you know, uh, what happened during the Second World War and the mass systematic mass destruction of, of human life uh, through factories. You know, to me, we we as as humans, we reach you no know, the 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 height of horror. You know, I, I don't think we can do worse than that. So I accepted this really. Um, early on in my life, which made me more ac- accepting of the situation I would be living in when I'd be working in this war zone. I wasn't surprised by what I saw. I mean, the sheer level of violence is astonishing, but it, it never really surprised me. And I found something really striking in war zones, which um, always surprised me and continues to surprise me, is that life goes on. Even, you know, in the midst of disruptions and destructions, even when people actively try, try to kill each other, there is still a part of us that seeks to go on. People still need to send their kids to school somehow, whatever the school looks like. People still need to bring food to the table. People still need to um, go to the hairdresser or to the dentist you know, in some strange ways, life goes on. And I have to say, women actually play a particular role in this. 
um, mostly, not only, but mostly men are fighting and women really on the background allow this life to go on in some sense, in some form. So what kind of, what kept you going? You know, because obviously, I mean, you partly answered that, but in, in terms of particular skills, so obviously you were, you know, you were in the conflict zones, you were dealing with lots of, um, lots of different organizations, lots of different communities and lots of different groups. So are there specific lessons that you could say that, um, you know, you, you know, you now have because of those work experiences? Mm. Let me think. Um, so I think you asked me to question here, like what kept me going, what specific lessons. So regarding the first one, what kept me going, it's hard to say. I think it's just part of my nature, really, just my personality. I was, I have always been interested by challenging um, situations. Um, and I, it's hard to find more challenging situations and conflict zones, really, um, or places where all systems are, are down. Um at the same time, you know, since I became a parent, it's pretty clear that I, I could not really continue this sort of life. So I do continue finding those sort of challenges differently, but not in war zones anymore. As for the lessons, there are so many, it's hard to say. But um, one of them is, for instance, I remember I worked in Iraq for a year and a half and um, I arrived in Iraq at the height of the... Uh, looting period just after the fall of Saddam, a couple of weeks after the fall of Saddam Hussein, the former dictator. And it was utter chaos. The The US and British and other forces were not really controlling towns much. They were controlling areas in towns. Um, so the rest of the country was really in, in a very chaotic mode. And to give you a sense, like something really shocked me for some reason then is uh, I was surprised how uh, when you unleash any order, uh, people do literally whatever they want. And some stuff that shocked me was how people would drive anywhere, left, right, sidewalks, anywhere to get to get where they wanted to be, when they wanted to get. But at the same time, after just a few weeks of the utter chaos, people also realized that, you know what, order is actually helpful. And it was fascinating to observe that without without the army, without the police, people started self-organizing because they collectively realized, you know what, we had our freedom. It's not cool, you know. This sort of excessive freedom is not is not helpful in living um, better. And it was fascinating to see how people rose to the occasion. And I saw in the midst of utter, you know, chaos, people literally getting out of the car and starting regulating traffic on their own. And then other people coming and help. And gradually over days and weeks, traffic going back to some sort of normalcy in the sense that people started respecting left and right again um they would not stop at red lights for a long time you know for some reason they were resistant to stopping at red lights uh, especially at night um but it was it was fascinating how you know after you know decades of dictatorship and 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 living in in a country where everything was regulated there was a need to explore any and any possible way to move. And then after really few weeks only, people realized that's not helpful. No, rules are actually helpful. Um, and that is coming back to my earlier point about life goes on. That is also something which struck me in a, in conflict zones is we need routine. We need normalcy, you know, to, 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 to feel more comfortable, safer, to thrive. Um, 
And in some ways, in some form, in, even in those highly disruptive environments, people still seek this and try to establish it. Establish it. So yeah, this, this is one of the lessons I learned, for instance. Mm. And it really re- resonates, you know, in the <laughs> what we've seen even in the in the last few years globally. You know, in workplaces with 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 COVID and you know with the with the chaos that that has caused, but also how quickly I've seen that we have all adapted, you know, yeah. to the changing conditions and the kind of rules and regulations. And and uh, it just made me think about, your, you know, now you're working, your, most of your work is in disasters and um, in Australia and, and climate change. Um, how do you think that those early experiences that you just described in in terms of, you know, working with those communities and, and you know, helping to kind of probably facilitate some of that um, community resilience, how would you say that you've kind of taken those ideas and brought them over to, to your work in climate change? Mm, right. Um, in different ways, I guess. The first way I could say... Um... When COVID hit or when, you know, the um, the different disaster we have faced in the region here, like the unprecedented bushfires that, you know, burnt um, a good part of eastern eastern side of Australia or lately the massive flooding events that uh, flooded and affected, you know, a massive region of Australia. Um, first, and perhaps linking back to what I was saying before, I wasn't surprised by it. It didn't, it, it, you know... You just have to look at the science to understand that it is entirely possible it can happen anywhere. And second, um, because of my prior experience in disasters, I have seen disruptions. I have seen functioning society becoming destroyed in the matter of an instant. And I knew it could happen here too. So when that happened, I wasn't surprised, which allowed me to kind of um, respond to it in, in, in a non-reactive way. Just respond, okay, this is what we have to do now. And also something which I teach, you know, in different in class or workshops is every disaster, while they look different one from another, they have phases and patterns which you can observe. And if you familiarize yourself with these, you can kind of even anticipate the next phase of the disaster and anticipate the mood, if you wish, of the population within that next phase and therefore it can be ready to support um, the communities once we are moving into the next phase. Um, so I think this is what I've, what my prior experience has helped me mm. implement here in the region. The second thing is, to me, you know, the world is going through a 20 years transition uh, between the old world and the new world, you know, and a good portion of the world is acutely aware of the climate crisis and the need to change the way we live. And another part of the world doesn't want to face this, but we're getting there. And institutions, governments, but also communities are all going along this 20 years you know, period, a, diff- a different stage of this, this period. And some of them are, you know, the forefront, others are really lagging behind. But I think we are all moving there somehow. That's what I see like in responses to disasters and how people recover and go back. Some people, instead of bouncing back to what life is, are bouncing forward and are looking really at, okay, so if this is it, if we're going to get flooded or affected by another heat wave or drought or whatever that is, um, how do we have to organize ourselves to be ready for the next one and not just go back to what is and then be caught by surprise again? So I think this mindset is is gradually shifting 
um, across across you know the planet and certainly our region. And I sense that you know for those who are still lagging behind, nature will remind us. I was curious if you could unpack some. So we, so you founded uh, the organization Resilient Byron, mm-hmm. and you know obviously that's very you know that's which is doing something really really practical on the ground. Um, so could you unpack that a bit to your listeners? How did you come up with the idea, and how did you? kind of you know get Brazilian buying going yeah sure so Brazilian buying is a non-for-profit charity it's a grassroots organization which um, I founded three years ago um, to precisely help our communities here in the northern rivers prepare for disasters and crisis and we have three objectives one to help people connect connect with themselves connect with each other connect with uh, nature the second objective is to build our resilience, so our capacity to uh, respond to uh, to disasters and crises by preparing for them and and responding cons- constructively. And finally, regeneration. So realistically, if we want to um, live in some sort of um, normalcy in this center of climate crisis, I think we have to rethink our different systems, our food system, water systems, communication systems, um, uh, power elect- power systems or electricity systems, stuff like that, uh, education systems, and others, so that we really account for future generations, for our children and grandchildren, and those who are not born yet. So we need to rethink the way we use uh, resources and um, to, to to create abundance rather than scarcity and destruction in the process. Uh, so. Resilient Barn has has achieved a number of different projects on the ground. Essentially, uh, around a few years ago, it was more about raising awareness of communities about the different risks we face. And now it's more about helping them respond to the latest floods, but also prepare for the future disasters. Our current flagship project is the Northern Rivers Community Cares and Responders Network. So it's a network of residents located across the Northern Rivers, which we identify, train, and mobilize in order for normal people to get the skills and the connection to be able to prepare and respond to future disasters and crises by creating an atmosphere conducive to caring for each other and being supportive of each other, connected with each other, but also practically ready for different crises from you know, a power system, from a water system, from a communications perspective, etc. But in a, doing so in a way which allows us to remain together as opposed to one against the other. And interestingly, sorry, coming back to your question about why resilient environment, um, <laughs> so that was before the bushfires, before the floods, before COVID. Now it's a time where we felt like Australia was, you know, still the lucky country. And, you know, in, in Australian psyche, I think the summer was very much associated with the beach, you know, with holidays, with Christmas, with joy, barbecue, family, friends, you know, this really excitement for our summer. Uh, and in some ways and some form, I think our feeling and our approach to summer got really shattered by... Um, uh, the bushfires, like the, the, the year after the bushfires, I, I felt an anxiety among Australians, you know, 15 million of which had been affected by the bushfires. 
and uh, you know they were kind of wondering, will this happen again? What sort of summer are we going to face? And now with the recent floods that have affected so such a large part of Australia, I, I suspect and I fear the same is going to happen. You know, whenever rains and heavy rains happen. So we created Resin Bind before all of this happened. At a time, it was clear for me that such large-scale compounding disaster would happen. But of course, I did not anticipate those specific bushfires or floods. I just knew it could happen and would hit us at some point. I didn't realize it'd be so big so fast. So just before the floods, so so how did you see the patterns kind of unfolding that you... Because, I mean, the, the floods, especially in Lismore, was mm-hmm. such a large scale and people, most people lost everything. And we still have people who are still not, don't have an actual decent place to live. So how did, in those days just before the flood, mm. how would you describe that you kind of observed the signs or patterns that, mm. and yeah, what did that look like for you? So I think um, you could look at it at two two different levels. The first one was the natural elements. So following the the rain and uh, the associated uh, forecast, weather forecast, and then warnings from different institutions about the coming heavy rains. Um, So there was a few days of kind of wait and see. And then the second aspect you could observe was how people were reacting to that wait and see period. So on the one hand, no, we were not affected by the rains yet. The threat was not present, but nobody was living their normal life either. We knew something was coming, and the previous large uh, raining events happened five years ago and profoundly affected you know, Lismore and the area. And so there was, as, on the one hand, a sense of anxiety and um, kind of uncertainty, but also on the hand, uh, learning from previous flooding experience, people on the Sunday, just prior to the flooding, so the flooding happened on the night between Sunday to Monday, on the Sunday, people going into town and the CBD and helping each other, carrying all the furniture and all the goods and stuff from the ground floor to the first floor, hoping that you know it would remain safe um, on the first floor. And of course, because the unprecedented level of floods, it, it wasn't. Even the first floor was was affected by the flood. But there was this 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 I think two aspects in, in from a population's perspective. On the one hand, those who were anxious and uncertain and fearing for what was going to come. And those who were proactive and supportive and uh, even cheerful and kind of getting ready for it this time and being caught by surprise. And then once to, to continue, if you wish, this kind of different phases, um, once the threat was visible, once the rain happened, uh, it, it, it rained an extraordinary amount of water. Um, and I think what people mostly experience was the sheer shock of how much water there was and the immediate effect on people's uh, lives and property um, either because they were flooded and the water was incre- like increasing in the property at, at an extraordinary rate very very quickly or affecting them if they were living in the hills and creating landslides destroying homes roads or threatening to do so and i think there was a, a really strong sense of shock denial, um, fear that happened. And at the same time, few hours in this process, people rising to the occasion 
So an extraordinary gener generous generous response from the community to helping each other out. Um, it was very clear that the scale of disaster was immense. It was very clear that institutions and disaster agencies just were not capable to cover mm. all of the needs. And so with your observations, you, you talked earlier about Iraq and, you know, kind of, you know, the chaotic situation that you entered into and then suddenly the kind of communities, you know, had more kind of control and were self-organising. So do you, do you feel that there is that connection between kind of order and community resilience and how did you see that play out um, just after the floods? Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. So there's an, an, a necessary moment of confusion where, you know, on the one hand, people expect combat agencies and governments step in and do what they're supposed to do. And they did to a certain extent, but we have to remember they too were affected by the disasters. Mm. Um, they too were flooded. They too were incapable of going through certain areas because the roads were flooded. They too had lost their communications and power and everything. So the confusion was absolutely normal. Um, and out of this confusion, kind of, uh, even though it, it, it would probably have looked very chaotic, um, patterns emerged and, and, and uh, response emerged. And what happened is people took on themselves to help each other in different ways. So the, the, the archetype is you know, people getting in the boats and tinnies and kayak and helping others from, from their rooftops. But what happened even after those first few hours, the first few days, when all the lives that could be saved were saved, you know, there was an extraordinary community effort throughout the northern rivers and multiple um, in multiple places of the region, people came together often at community hall and from from the ground up out of the blue started organizing themselves and what may have appeared as very chaotic was actually very sophisticated if you were able to look at the patterns so you could see you know people getting into leadership position and on the one hand um, understanding the needs uh, and gathering those needs and gathering information about trying to understand what was happening who needed what and on the other hand providing a oh, or being welcoming people who were keen to support and guiding those people who were keen to support the volunteer to meet those needs. So acting as a as a central point between, on the one hand, those people who needed help and people who were eager to help. And that happened throughout the region. And those needs were all sorts of needs. Some people needed evacuation and people organized, you know, helicopter, private helicopter um, evacuations or drops of food for people who were isolated in the mountains and the hills. Um, other needs were, you know, food and water or communication systems uh, um, or access to properties when roads were destroyed. Um, other needs were uh, clothing and um, uh, ability to be able to return to the house that was affected by the floods, so cleaning, um, and in different community hubs, you know, over the hours, days, and weeks, you know, the community self-organized um, and responded to those needs in, in quite admirable way. And of course, there was you no know, if you had if you were dropped into these circles, into these places, you would have a sense of confusion. But if you would also look at these, you would also see patterns and actually order, not necessarily order in the way you would think of from, you know, when an army comes in and, and organizes something, but order from a community perspective was very real too. Mm. And it really <laughs> sounds like, you know, adaptation on the go is like, you know, these disasters come, come and happen and then people and businesses just have to 
has to kind of adapt them for um, for the community also to come together. So, so what yes. are your hopes for for resilient Byron? And I'm really interested. What do you think that other people um, or others can learn from your experiences in in terms of setting up uh, this kind of community resilience organizations mm-hmm. like Resilient Byron? Well, look, it's been really interesting because there's there's been a lot happening already um, these past few years, like Helping Hands in Lismore that played a critical role after 2017, you know, became Resilient Lismore and continues now to play a role after the 2022 floods. Uh, Resilient Events Heads was created, Resilient UKI, all sorts of different um, and more. So all sorts of different kind of local grassroots community-led uh, or focused um, response emerged basically and what was really interesting is you know how i said before nature will remind us so these are some of the stuff we have been trying to do for years and there was more or less interest depending and now there's some stuff we don't even need to convince people about because now uh, nature has remind us reminded us that we need to prepare for this now it's it, it's going to come back again and again so i agree with you with what you say you no know, people adapt because we're forced to adapt so i think what we can do is make this adaptation as less painful as possible instead of adapting because we are kind of reacting to trauma it'd be better if we could adapt by coming together and anticipating and planning for the future mm. uh, uh, disasters and disruptive events and this can be you know nature based such as uh, uh, bushfire or flood can be also social based human based such as covid or housing crisis or financial crisis um, which are as disruptive to our communities so if we can uh, nurture this social cohesion, bring people together in whatever shapes or form, it can be you no know, weekly activity, um, sports activity, it can be you know a potluck among neighbors, it can be an arts activity. Um, whatever bring people together is building resilience, is bringing people together. And if in parallel we can also equip people to support each other, either psychologically or practically, then you add another additional layer to building community resilience. And then if you organize this second layer, you, you bring people together, you equip them, you connect them one with each other, you agree on certain ways of communicating with each other, of exchanging you know, goods and information and skills, then you, you can sense you go deeper in building this community resilience. And then if uh, to add an additional layer, you know, uh, you help them um, de- do the deeper resilience work and help them connect with themselves and help them connect with nature. You, you can sense again that you go deeper and deeper in that community resilience uh, uh, building. And then if you help them rethink the different systems we rely on, the food system, the education system, the water systems, the power systems, the waste system, etc., you can sense that again, you go, you go really deep in this work. So... Depending on where your capacities are as an individual, but also where your community is in that 20-year transition period, you know, you can do more or less activities. At the very least, you can help people um, come together in whatever shape or form. Mm. But if you if you are ready, if you have the capacity, and if your community is ready, then you can also help them go much deeper and transforming really the way we live so that we can leave live more at peace in the center of climate crisis. I think inherently in our societies where we have been used to to live on our own in very individualistic, materialistic lives, I think, you know, when it comes to 
thinking about future disasters and crises, we may respond to it from a place of fear and therefore in place of how can I protect me and myself? And it's a very you know, selfish way to look at it. And my concern with a lot of people who are interested in survivalism is they are driven by this selfish response. And whilst normal um, from a human perspective, it's also, I think, detrimental from a resilience building perspective. Mm. To me, survivalism has you know, some elements which are useful. So for instance, how to organize food stock, that's a, that's a useful skill to have. But the mindset behind this, which is very um, selfish driven, is fundamentally uh, um, weakening the whole uh, enterprise. To me, one can only be safe if your neighbors and your community is safe. And your neighbors and your community cannot be safe if their neighbors and their the neighbors' mm. communities is safe. So it it has to be a community effort. It has to be to, done together. Absolutely, and I think that's um, that's been beautiful beautiful to see that in you know that's what has been also been happening in this in these communities during crisis. Mm, absolutely, and. And so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we've had the fires, we had the floods. Um, <laughs> there's probably more more on the way, uh, more business disruption. Uh, uh, you know, the, the world seems to be in chaos. So in terms of, you know, you've been in the war zones, you've been in the disaster zones, um, in, in fires and floods. What keeps you going? Hmm. I think, look, realistically, I think one is part of my nature. It's part of who I am. But second is um, I'm a dad of two young boys who are three and six. And, you know, when climate scientists tell us, you know, this is you know, what we can uh, more or less expect for what's going to happen by 2030 or 2050 or 2100. To me, this is very real. It's not hypothetical future. It's this. My kids will still be alive and they will reach a point where they will wonder, do they have, do they should they have children because of the state of the planet? And I'm acutely aware of this. In, in, you know, we are closer to 2015 than we are to 1990. And if you look at this perspective, you realize how quickly it's going to come and how different the world will look because of the climate crisis, but also the massive biodiversity loss, the plastic pollution and, and more. So it's, in a way, impossible for me not to do something about it. You know, and to me, there are two, absolutely two essential ways forward. The first one is on the mat- material practical front to make sure we change the way we live and we are effectively prepared for future disasters and crises um, in, in, as communities, but also on a personal level, deeper level, to also do the inner work to connect with oneself and be able to be at peace with it all and 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 when confronted with those massive disruption, respond from that place of peace. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. And I've, I've um, really been fascinated by, you know, your mentioning of the mindset, like the individual mindsets, but also the kind of community mindset that we, you know, we look after, after each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the, you know, seeing patterns and anticipation. And I think there's a lot even for professionals to to go on in terms of understanding what the future might hold and and how do you how do you understand the change and transition processes and skill building for the future all right thank you sean thank you 
The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Thank you.